My Black Counts is a podcast series produced by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health, with assistance from WYPR. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Black Counts an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow within their communities. My name is Dr. Shakobi Wilson. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the past Women's History Month, our EJ Shiro's EJ Heroines, and of course, we're going to talk about Earth Day, right? Earth Day 2023. Now, when we think about my block counts, why are we here? I'm a professor at the University of Maryland College Park. I direct the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice and Health. I got involved in these issues because I grew up in Mississippi, right? You think about the Jackson water crisis. I got family members in Jackson right now, but I'm from Vicksburg, Mississippi. And I grew up near a highway. I grew up near a sewage treatment plant. And my mama always reminds me, son, don't forget the landfill, right? So I grew up near environmental hazards. That context informs you know, my trajectory as being an environmental health scientist and really working with communities, doing work for the people, doing empowerment science. How do you empower community members to use science, collect their own data, and liberation science? How do we make sure we can liberate those who've been most impacted by environmental hazards, those who've been overburdened by environmental hazards, those who experience environmental injustices, environmental racism, how we can liberate them from those exposures, from that toxic trauma, from being poisoned? That's why we have this podcast to talk about the issues, right? The problem with ties, but in the words of Jesse Jackson, are also solutionized. Jesse never said it, but you get my point. In this podcast, we're really about giving people tools that they can use to address environmental and climate injustices. You know, at my center, we really focus on, again, helping people through partnerships, collect this data and use the data for action. So this podcast takes a deep dive into environmental issues, impacting folks across the state of Maryland and other parts of the country, and really talks about how we can understand the role that the environment plays in producing uh, negative health outcomes and how the environment can lead to poor quality life for underserved and overburdened communities. But again, with this podcast, we wanna give you tools that you can use to help you grow and help things flow in your communities. When you think about the work that we do in the Mid-Atlantic region, I wanna focus quickly on the Mid-Atlantic Justice Coalition. Now this coalition uh, was a coalition I helped to co-found with Namate and other colleagues in 2021 as a second generation of the DMV-EJ Coalition. And so that DMV-EJ Coalition was conceived after one of our annual environmental justice symposiums. So I have a symposium that I do every year at the University of Maryland that focuses on environmental justice. It was conceived, I believe, after the 2012 symposium. Like We need to have an organization that brings folks together from the grassroots, advocates and activists in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area who are working on environmental and climate justice issues. And then again, in 2021, MAGIC is the acronym, y'all. The Mid-Atlantic Justice Coalition is the second generation of that coalition. And we focus on science and legal empowerment for frontline and fence line communities impacted by environmental 
climate and economic injustices in Washington, D.C., like folks who may be living in Ward 7 or 8, or if one of our speakers today is going to talk about her work in Ivy City, one of our sheroes today, also in Maryland, in Virginia, and also Delaware. And another one of our sheroes will be talking about her work on issues in uh, Eastern Shore, Maryland, and also in Southern Delaware. So the coalition has three goals, support local organizing, co-develop a policy framework for advancing social, racial, and environmental justice across the region, and then fight to turn this framework into law. So we have numerous advocates and activists from grassroots group, from green groups, from other stakeholder groups who are members of MAGIC. And again, what we want to do in this region is to make sure that we are working together, building a social movement that can really address these environmental justice issues from landfills to air pollution to waste issues when you think about incinerators, also transportation issues, addressing issues around industrial chicken farming, addressing issues around traffic, affordable housing. These are the issues that are important to members of MAGIC, and, and we're trying to build together build power, grow power, and impact change. So some of our guest speakers today are going to be talking about their work as members of their communities working on these issues. They're also members of our Mid-Atlantic Justice Coalition. So happy Earth Day, everybody. Now, what is Earth Day? Earth Day, as you've been celebrating every year, on April 22nd in the U.S., and it's really a very important day for us to, again, celebrate our planet, right? Celebrate Mother Earth. It's considered the anniversary of the founding of the modern environmental movement and raises awareness of the need to protect Earth's natural resources for future generations. What do we mean by natural resources? You know, our rivers, our oceans, our forests, natural landscapes. You know, we are all connected to nature, right? Nature is an important part of who we are, and we should be able to grow in spaces where we have access to nature, just not for our generation today, but for our kids and their kids. A decade before Earth Day, Americans used vast amounts of leaded gasoline and due to inefficient and massive vehicles, right? So think about before we had Earth Day, all the environmental issues that we had with air pollution from our vehicles, we had rivers on fire, we had Love Canal. And so folks were very concerned about these issues, but many people in the mainstream public just weren't aware about the dangers from these pollutants that they experience every day, from the smog that they experience every day, from the Cuyahoga River, for example, being on fire. That's why we have an Earth Day to really speak to all of us about what we can do to protect our planet, to do a better job of addressing pollution issues, to do a better job of being stewards of the environment. So everything is interconnected, people. We are part of the Earth. The Earth is part of us. When you think about Earth Day and you think about what we need to do in protecting our planet, you also have to talk about the environmental justice movement. So, of course, we have mainstream environmental movement that focuses a lot on biodiversity, that's focused a lot on conservation, uh, that's focused a lot on sustainability. But we also have to remember that the environmental justice movement 
also emerged in the late 70s, early 80s. And it really came out of the fact that when we're celebrating Earth Day, when we look at our environmental activism, some populations weren't being covered. Their issues and concerns weren't being raised. Some of their issues and concerns were invisible. Their voices weren't being heard. We had the 1991 First People of Color Summit in Washington, D.C., where people came together to codify the principles of environmental justice. And these principles really define the modern environmental justice movement, but also define, in many ways, the modern environmental movement. So these principles are key to us being stewards of the environment. And also, we should celebrate the folks who've been in the environmental justice movement on Earth Day. I believe that when we look at what we're doing to celebrate Earth Day, now actually, it's not just Earth Day, everyone, it's Earth Month. We should make sure that we focus on social justice, racial justice, environmental justice, and climate justice as we celebrate Earth Day. So not just, again, protecting polar bears and far off uh, biodiversity of biomes, but also your neighborhood, what's down the street, the park, the green space, what's inside your home is your environment too. So when we think about environmental justice and Earth Day, we really want to make sure we connect it to what we live, what we work, what we play, what we pray, what we learn. And that's important to note when you're celebrating Earth Day this year. We have to focus on addressing pollution issues, public health issues. We have to focus on addressing equity and justice issues. Now, when we think about environmental justice, we really have to think about women in environmental justice. The movement is really run by women. Last month was Women's History Month. And I think we really need to give a round of applause to all women out there who are doing their jobs, helping with their families. And for us with My Block Counts, those women from Mother Johnson, who's really the mother of the EJ movement, Dolly Burwell, another mother of the EJ movement, folks like Peggy Shepard, Bernice Miller-Travis, and many others who are known and unknown, those women who are really push-driven, been the faces and been the voices and really been warriors when it comes to the environmental justice movement. But let's talk about Women's History Month. It's a celebration of women's contributions to history, cultural society. Started in 1987, it's a month set aside to honor women's unsung contributions in American history. Here's some facts. First started out as Women's History Day. First one was held in 1909. February 28, 1909 marked the first Women's History Day in New York City. It commemorated the one-year anniversary of the garment worker strikes when 15,000 women marched through lower Manhattan. From 1909 to 1910, immigrant women who worked in garment factories held a strike to protest their working conditions. So think about that and how that connects to the environmental justice movement. It's an economic justice movement. It's also a movement of workers fighting for their rights. The day became Women's History Week in 1978. So an educational task force in Sonoma County, California, kicked off Women's History Week in 1978 on March 8th. And you had also International Women's Day. And this is according to the National Women's History Alliance. In 1987, Women's History Month began. So different organizations including the National Women's History Alliance, campaigned yearly to recognize Women's History Week. In 1980, President Jimmy Carter 
declared the week of March 8th, Women's History Week across the country. Wyoming Territory was the first place to grant women the right to vote. And this is according to history.com, the Wyoming Territorial Legislature gave every woman the right to vote in 1869. Then the 19th Amendment didn't give all women the right to vote. The 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote, was signed into law on August 26, 1920. But at the time, a number of other laws prohibited Native American women, Black women, Asian American women, and Hispanic Latinx women from voting, among others. 145 women currently serve in United States Congress out of 535 total members. That's 27%. Though the number of women representatives continues to rise, it's important to keep in mind that United States population is 51% female. We have a long ways to go to make sure we have parity and the leadership in this country. In the EJ community, we acknowledge the strength and persistence of our women heroes and leaders in the EJ movement. Today, we're lucky to have Sabrina Rose with Empower DC and also Maria Payne, co-founder of Sussex Health and Environmental Network and Centers of the Eastern Shore. Welcome to My Block Counts. How are y'all doing today? Good, good. How's everyone? So we're going to start with Sabrina first. This is really a great pleasure to have you here. And let's dive right in and just to talk about your work in the EJ space as the obvious city organizer for Empower DC. So Empower DC's mission is to enhance, improve, and promote the self-advocacy of low and moderate income DC residents in order to bring about sustained improvements in their quality of life. Can you tell us more about how you accomplish this mission? Well, organizing is what I do. There's so many issues in D.C., so many families, so many people that's struggling to just breathe clean air. So what we do is we organize around these issues. We have some folks that's dealing with affordable housing. We have a lot of our communities that's dealing with environmental issues, mold, infestations, lack of green space. So what we do is we uh, educate everyone about our rights, and I'm included. We train and we get people organized so that they can stand up for their rights. Okay, cool. Thank you for that. Can you speak more uh, on Empower DC's guiding principles? We directly engage groups who share a common problem, such as affordable housing. We have folks that we uh, organize to uh, fight for housing. We have folks who fight for resources. We all know across the country, we're having issues with paying rent, paying utilities, childcare, getting a job where you can afford to pay your rent and your bills. We have a lot of environmental issues. We're educating everyone about the different problems that can negatively affect our health. And if you're not educated about that, then you're going around, you're walking around just thinking that the air is clean when it's not. Here in Ivy City, Ivy City is 150 years old. We have a chemical plant with no air permit or business license, and they're still allowed to operate. So to that, we making sure that those who are allowing this to happen in our community are being held accountable and educating the community on how we're going to hold these folks accountable is how we organize. Education, 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 but 
critical education, education to empower folks, to organize folks. No, thank you for that. We're celebrating Earth Month and Earth Day always on the 22nd. So what does Earth Day mean to you personally? And what does Earth Day mean for your organization, Empower DC? Well, I'll start with me personally. When my children were younger, we used to go down to the monument and celebrate Earth Day. And they had a lot of things for the children to do, activities. I was never personally into the Earth Day. It just was an Earth Day to me. Now, as I've gotten older, my children have gotten older. Earth Day means protect the Earth, protect Mother Earth, because that's the only way we can survive. If Mother Earth is destroyed, we're destroyed. And for my community, how can we celebrate Earth Day when we're being poisoned every day. For some people, Earth Day is just a statement. Earth Day is just a, a phrase. Earth Day is just a day. But if you're not doing what it takes to protect Mother Earth, then it means nothing. It means nothing. And from what we see in these agencies that's supposed to protect the people, they're not protecting Mother Earth as well. When you want to take your shoes off and ground in the grass, you don't even know if your feet is getting uh, saturated with chemicals in the soil. You know, you want to go out and hug a tree or sit under the tree, but you don't know exactly what's going on around that tree as far as the environment. Our environment is part of Earth. That's something that needs to be highlighted. Protect Mother Earth, protect our environment, protect our communities, and then we can enjoy what was naturally given to us. Thank you for that powerful statement. How are you going to enjoy Earth Day when you've been poisoned? That's a powerful point. One of your goals as an organization is to engage and empower local communities with the tools to create lasting and equitable change in housing. As a leader with Friends of Crumble School and a community organizer in Power DC, how successful and challenging has the journey been? Can you tell the audience more about the Crumble School it's historic connection yeah. to the community yeah. and what y'all being able to do to preserve it. Well, the Alexander Cremel School has been closed since 1977, named after an African-American, Alexander Cremel, an abolitionist. He started Pan-Africanism, was a leader, influenced Frederick Douglass, influenced W.E.B. Du Bois, went to Africa, taught in Africa, Alexander Cremel was into educating the Black community in order for us to be able to, I can say, protect ourselves now, deal with what's going on in our environment in the world today. So it's been closed since 1977, and the district had no plans on investing in that school. This is what got me started because the school is a, a Beautiful, beautiful historic brick school is nothing like it. It is a historic landmark. It opened in 1911. This is like over a hundred year old fight. The community wanted something better for the children. The children had to walk miles to get to school. So the community fought to have this school here so that they can go to school in their community instead of walking miles to another community. It wasn't safe back in the early 1900s. It was not safe for our Black children to walk miles to get to an elementary school. So when the school was open, the children, they had no idea 
that they were lacking. They didn't have an auditorium, didn't have a lunchroom, didn't have cafeteria, didn't have a gymnasium, but the children enjoyed it nonetheless. And that's how it was back in the day. <laughs> back in the day when we can call DC Chocolate City, this was a space for our children to socialize and enjoy and develop. When they closed it, it took the heart away from Ivy City. Ivy City is a small community. It was built in 1873 to be a predominantly Black community. And so when schools were segregated, Cremel was the only school Black children can go to. So it was upsetting to me that the city wanted to just let it sit with boarded up windows. And then uh, several mayors wanted it to be an overflow for Union Station. Union Station is where the Amtrak trains come through. All the Amtrak trains, if you want to go out of town, that's where you go. You catch the buses, the Greyhound, Megabus, Boat Bus or Amtrak. So they wanted the overflow to be in the middle of our community. That was part of environmental racism, if you don't say anything else. Why would the city put big Greyhound buses in the middle of a community. So that was part of it. They wanted to put a highway through Ivy City. And they wanted to put a dump while the school was thriving across the street from the school. The school has been shut down. We have been fighting, I must say. A couple of years ago, the mayor put $20 million in the budget. A couple of days ago, we found out the mayor, Bowser, put $15 more million in the budget the community has been fighting to have this two-acre site where the school sits as a community center for Ivy City. And this is the start of us redoing our community and bringing back the heart, which is the Cremel School. That's powerful. Just the connections and the history and what he's done for Ivy City history, but also just for Black people in general. Yes. So having that recognition and that as the heart is powerful for the movement and obviously, but also it's great for young folks to see like their connection to history, what they can do. Could you speak more about Empower DC's work on just the fight for equity and affordable housing in the communities? Yes, well, we know about how a lot of our communities are being gentrified. We know how a lot of us that are low income, moderate income, working class have been displaced and outpriced here in the nation's capital. One key piece, Burry Farms. Along with Ivy City, Burry Farms is a very historic community. They were a public housing community where there are generations that have been there and lived and dealt with the lack of resources, the lack of investments into the community. But it was like one big happy family. And the district decided to tear it down. So that's one community that Empower DC is working very closely with, is to make sure that the residents of Berry Farm is able to come back once they develop that land. And that's what we're doing all over the city, making sure that the residents of the district is not being displaced. And if there is some development going on, that we have the right to come back. And a lot of times when you're displaced, then you're 
priced out, you can't afford to come back, or it's so much red tape that you're not able to come back. That's just their strategy. What we are doing is making sure that that's not their strategy and that residents are able to come back. Residents are able to take care of their families and just live in peace and have a roof over their head and have running water, not having mold, not having infestations and holding the city accountable to make sure there are deeply, deeply, because they throw around that word affordable. Affordable is not affordable to everyone. So we're looking at deeply affordable housing for the most vulnerable. Y'all hear Sabrina talking about development that leads to displacement. We're talking about gentrification. That's expulsive zoning plan development. You get priced out. And so when you think about development, you can't have development for us without us. Mm-hmm. And so you got to make sure that this development is actually community driven. Mm-hmm. And gentrification is an environmental justice issue. Not having deeply affordable housing is an environmental justice issue. Having affordable housing where folks are still being supposed to live is an environmental justice issue. Having affordable housing people being exposed mold, mildew, and allergies is an environmental justice issue. Having housing where folks dealing with flooding issues is an environmental justice issue. Having yeah. housing where folks are dealing with heat issues because they don't have yeah. HVAC, they don't have air conditioning, that's an environmental justice issue, right? We're letting honest know how housing is important, and housing is a very important part of our neighborhoods. It's very important about how we make it our block count. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, you know, another question about how's the work that you're doing with Empower DC? How's it connect to the larger work y'all are doing with the DC Environmental Coalition? First of all, you're never too old to learn and you're never too educated to learn. So a lot of us are learning from other coalitions and other states. We're all dealing with the same issues but just in different areas. Our work with the EJ Coalition is amazing. We're learning so much and we're understanding that your issues are the same issues we're having. You just have to deal with a different type of government, have to deal with a different setting, but it's the same thing. We are just banding together, making it big, letting them know that we're not sleeping (laughs) and we're going to fight every step of the way. And so you're talking about deeply affordable housing. That's an economic justice issue. You're talking about economic inequality. And we just celebrated, you know, Women's History Month last month. So can you speak to this issue of the pay gap, the gender gap, women being paid 82 cents for every dollar that a man makes, and that gap widens even more for women of color? What does that mean for your work in communities impacted by environmental injustice? in communities that don't have access to deeply affordable housing. Women are powerful. We're out here in all the creases of the communities. We're out here raising our families. We're working, we're going to school, we're speaking up, we're taking care of the house. We wear so many hats and still don't get paid for it. If we was to get paid, they wouldn't have enough money to pay us. Yes, ma'am. I hear you. (laughs) You know, the pay gap, to me, that's neither here or there. We have to fight so many fights in order to get there. And we're here in 2023 still talking about the same thing they were talking about in the 40s and the 50s. The same thing. And in order for us to get ahead, we need to make sure that our voices are heard and make sure that we make changes that are going to be effective in our communities. We're still fighting the same fights. My grandmother was fighting. My mom was fighting. And it's still going to be the same thing. 
But long as our voices are heard and long as we're making changes for our families, making changes for everyone's families that really matter because people are going to make money. There's a lot of money out here and people are going to make it. Money is not the driver into this force that women have. Women are part of nature. And that's another story in itself. We're going to make the change to make sure that our families can stand for themselves. And the money doesn't do that. The money help us do day-to-day -day things, but it's not the power that drives us. The power that drives us is our will to take care of each other, our nurturing, the will to make sure that our families are taken care of. And sometimes like, you know, our grandparents, they strive with little or nothing. Some women did not work, they were housewives and still made it happen. And that's what we're gonna do <laughs> forever and ever. So it's not the money, it's our will, our drive and our voice. That's the power that's gonna make the change. That's powerful. So y'all heard that will drive voice. That's what women bring to the table and that's their power to make change. That's their power to make change at the community level. That's their power to make change at the neighborhood level. That's their power to make sure each block counts, to make sure that your block counts. So thank you for that, Sabrina. Really appreciate the time. Excellent uh, words to celebrate Earth Day and also just putting in the right you know, context what Women's History Month really means. Women like you are making history every day. So thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. This is My Block Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow in their communities. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Dr. Wilson out. You've been listening to My Block Counts. My Block Counts is sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland. Executive producer and host, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, with production assistance from Ariel Wharton. Technical producer, Kelly Avent. Additional information about My Black Counts can be found at ceejh.center or wypr.org. New episodes of My Black Counts are released each month. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review.